Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back to Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. Unfortunately, yesterday I did lose my voice, so today's episode might be a little bit difficult to understand given the nature of my current vocal cords, but today is the 10th episode of HTIL, which is super exciting because it concludes what I view as the first chapter in this journey. And what I mean by that is this podcast started 10 episodes ago, 10 weeks ago, two and a half months ago. And initially, my first ever episode, I didn't tell anybody about. (laughs) I wanted to keep it private because I was so nervous about how it was going to go. And I wasn't even sure if I wanted to continue to do it, to be completely honest with you. And eventually, later that week, I did tell a lot of friends about it, some family about it, and received largely positive, very supportive feedback. And then, and then ever since then, been coming to WVFI studio every single Sunday morning to record an episode. And now we are in episode 10, which is so crazy. And it also marks a little bit of a transition period as well, because in, I think, roughly like 10 days... I head back home to Connecticut, and I will continue the podcast at home, but a large portion of the podcast that I will be recording at home will be interviews, and so we have some exciting interviews coming up in the the months of November, December, and January that will kind of um, be geared towards the second chapter, the second season, so to say, of HTIL. This specific episode is dedicated to every vote of confidence, every kind message of support, every hug, every listen, every cup of coffee that prompted an eating disorder conversation, every nature walk discussing eating disorders, every phone call, every encouraging comment that has made this journey so special. It's been an incredibly transformative and eye-opening 10 weeks, and I cannot wait to see what's to come. So first, I just kind of want to take you guys through a little recap of the last 10 episodes. Today's episode is going to be a recap and also a QA. and a And when we go through the recap, I'm not going (laughs) to go through every single thing I mentioned in every single episode because that's nearly 10 hours of content, but we're going to touch on some of the more important things. And if you guys want to go back and listen to these things more in depth, you are totally welcome to do so. Um, But for now, we're just going to start off with episode one. So again, this is an episode that I did not tell a single soul about. And I came to the studio that morning and, you know, put on my headphones turned on the speaker system here, and recorded. And after I was done, 
I like cleaned, you know, whatever I needed to do in the studio, exited, and like listened to it on my own. And I knew the next episode was going to be my testimony and my story. And then during that week is when I initially, or I first kind of like announced what the podcast was, why I was doing it, what it was called, what was its goal, etc. So kind of, um, kind of crazy how in the past 10 weeks, how much this, this little project <laughs> that I thought might be helpful and might help my own recovery has transformed into. Episode one was largely an overview of everything that I've learned. So we talked about the types of eating disorders, including anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, orthorexia, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is ARFID, other specified feeding or eating disorder, which is OFSID, PICA, rumination, or unspecified feeding or eating disorder, UFED. We also talked about specific risk factors that may lead to the development of an eating disorder, including a close relative with an eating disorder, history of weight control methods, perfectionism, body image dissatisfaction, behavioral inflexibility, affected if you have been affected by weight stigma or discrimination in your life, type 1 diabetes, acculturation, trauma in any form. And then I also shared my first poem during episode one, entitled An Apology to Myself. And it was my first declaration of an eating disorder. Kind of interesting how my first declaration of an eating disorder in my high school and to myself um, was featured on my first episode of a very public declaration of eating disorders with this podcast. Then we jumped into episode two, which I think forever and ever will be my favorite episode. I'm largely biased, and perhaps that's narcissistic to say, <laughs> but episode two detailed my testimony. I talked about, I talked about my experience with anorexia, both subtypes, both the restrictive and the binge part subtype. I talked about body dysmorphia. I talked about um, my entire journey having an eating disorder through high school and then also how that eating disorder transformed during college and where my recovery came in during quarantine. I talked about how I, can, how I was able to heal relationships not only with food but with myself and with others as well that were surrounding me. I talked about the triggers that affected me. And I think most importantly, I talked about how recovery had changed my life and how it had become a vocational, almost experiment for me in determining, because I feel like when you determine who you are, which in large part is what recovery is, because you have to seek to redefine yourself and intentionally construct different ways and different methods of that you're going to use to just to uh, define yourself. You also figure out what you value, what you believe, and then you can use those skills and you can use those definitions and those self concepts to then inform what you're going to what you're going to do with your life. 
So my recovery in that way was very vocational. I think that's one of my favorite things about the episode because I talk about that a lot and how with this podcast and with what I hope to do in the future, I'm creating art out of what has threatened to destroy me. Episode three, we talked about the intersection of triggers and trauma and specifically how at different stages within an eating disorder, whether prior to, during, afterwards, trauma can appear. It can exist before as a risk factor to the development of an eating disorder. It can exist during as indicated by triggers. And it can also exist after as triggers can prompt a relapse. And triggers, as we had talked about during the episode, kind of traverse the junction between suffering and recovery. We also talked about how trauma and triggers manifest itself within different eating disorders, where the research is um, lacking in that field, as it is in many subsections of eating disorders, which is unfortunate, but... We also talked about the trigger to disordered behavior response. So we talked about like the different steps that are in that trigger to disorder behavior response. So number one, being identifying, being able to identify the trigger, being aware of how it's affecting you. Number two, interrupting. So you pause when faced with a disordered urge. You suspend the desire to immediately give in and give yourself time to engage in a positive behavior or response. And often one and two are simultaneous. You get the trigger and automatically you have this disordered urge. Whether it is, you know, something as large as like wanting to like binge or purge or restrict or whether it's literally even like mirror checking and engaging in negative self-talk. But those two things kind of appear simultaneously and they're felt simultaneously, which is why it's really difficult to try to interrupt that pathway. But if you give yourself the time to engage in a positive behavior response, this trigger to disordered behavior response becomes that much less, that less terrifying to try to deal with. So step number three then is an adaptive behavior to engage within that space between the disordered urge and the disordered behavior. And this includes, I, I always view it as like letting your body feel something pleasant. Letting it engage in a pleasurable act or thought or experience that then becomes an adaptive behavior that you can use repetitively. So this can take the form of journaling, of listening to music, of social media accounts, believe it or not. If you find some inspirational eating, uh, just social media accounts, specifically within the eating disorder community, Those are always very helpful for me. You can read, write some poetry, practice yoga, color, watch a favorite movie, pick up a new book, take a bubble bath, write down all the things you're grateful for. 
And all of these actions seem like very kitty, right? They seem very trivial. Like, really, do I really need to color (laughs) to try to suspend the disordered behavior? But yes, trust me, from a self-proclaimed mature 19-year-old young woman, these behaviors take on a completely different meaning (laughs) when they're used in the trigger to disordered urge response. Highly recommend. And then step number four is repeating. The more you pair a negative feeling with a healthier adaptive response, the stronger that link will become and the weaker the link between the disordered urge and the disordered behavior will become. So repetition in this way will become regular practice. And through this repetition, you don't need to engage within the same behavior every single time as long as the behavior in some way lets your body feel comforted, feel, feel pleasured in some way, content, any kind of adaptive, positive, physical or psychological responses is super helpful. So you can pair the negative feeling with something new every single time as long as that something new also elicits elicits a positive response for your body. Then we come to episode four, which we talked about eating disorders through a historical lens. This was also one of my favorite episodes just because the research surrounding it was so fascinating to read. And I'd never heard of any of these things before. So as much as it was probably a learning experience listening to this episode as listeners, it was also a learning experience for me as the host. We kind of charted eating disorder behavior throughout history. So we started in ancient communities where we looked at signs of bulimia, signs of anorexia, which were normalized as signs of wealth, signs of power, signs of ownership, some kind of authority. So they were used to elevate these notions of wealth and power in ancient communities, despite them existing as very disordered behaviors. We also talked about Then jumping a couple hundred years or whatever it is, or I guess a couple thousand years, we talked about anorexia mirabilis, specifically through um, the religious figure St. Catherine of Siena. And this was an effort to echo the suffering of Jesus by enduring voluntary self-inflicted pain. Yet this distorted and troublesome behavior often led to malnutrition and health complications, even resulting in death. And then we jump a couple hundred years to the first medical affirmation and recognition of eating disorders in 1689, where anorexia was discussed as a medical condition, not yet confirmed as one, but then we jump to 1873, another couple hundred years to Sir William Gull who is a physician to England's royal family and termed the suffering as anorexia nervosa. And then we jump about 30 years in the early 1900s to Dr. Pierre Genet, who observed his patients engaging in compensatory behaviors 
such as binging, purging, and abusing laxatives, some more of the bulimic side of eating disorders. We also talked about the Minnesota Starvation Experiment in 1944, which was one of the most fascinating finds that I have discovered in this 10-week journey of HTIO and how basically the experiment was an effort to understand the best rehabilitation diet for those with severely restricted intake during the war years. And so the experimenters and scientists introduced um, 36 healthy male subjects to induced voluntary starvation for about six months. And what was found afterwards was an instrumental piece of research used in the understanding and treatment of eating disorders. Participants' cognition, physicality, digestion, personality, and emotional capacity were all significantly altered. And these findings are fascinating to me because they in a lot of ways confirmed my own experiment, so to speak, with the eating disorder. (laughs) Because a lot of what the participants had faced in the aftermath of induced starvation is what I had faced in the aftermath of my own starvation. In 1952, anorexia was the first eating disorder to make it into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And I believe this was the first DSM ever to be published in 1952, and anorexia was included, yet it was solely categorized as a psychophysiological gastrointestinal reaction. It was paired along with gastrointestinal disorders, which undoubtedly limited the scope of its ability to be diagnosed and treated properly. In the 1970s, about 20 years later, we see psychoanalysis Dr. Hilde Birch, who authored more than 250 articles and six books, all of which helped to introduce eating disorders into popular discourse. Despite pioneering research and discussions surrounding eating disorders, the publishing of her findings coincided with an increase in both anorexia and bulimia rates within the United States. It's not aware of of whether or not um, our diagnosis criteria expanded a little bit and was more well understood so people could be more diagnosed and better diagnosed with eating disorders or because of her notions of eating disorder, which she talked about in um, her 250 articles and six books, if that you know, perhaps people kind of face mimicry in a, in a, in a way. Um, and then in the late 1970s, British psychiatrist Gerard Russell published a case series of 30 patients who engaged in bulimic practices, including self-induced vomiting, to lessen the effects of binge eating. His study, entitled Bulimia Nervosa, an ominous variant of anorexia nervosa, was the first clinical paper published on the subject. This was in the late 1970s. And then, consequently, in 1980, bulimia was first included in the DSM under new diagnostic criteria 
of eating disorders. So in 19, or 1980, just 40 years ago, eating disorders were included in the DSM. And they had their own category. No longer was it considered a gastrointestinal reaction, but it was instead considered an actual disease. And in this DSM model, they included anorexia, bulimia, pica, rumination disorder, and atypical eating disorder. Atypical eating disorder no longer is a diagnostic determinant, but yeah. So at that point, we have four, or five, I guess, five included in the DSM. And then in 2013, seven short years ago, binge eating disorder was first recognized in the DSM. And now because of this designation, we know that I think over 2.8 million people struggle with binge eating disorder. Throughout history, as we've seen in episode four and as we've seen today, eating disorders, in addition to the biological, neurological, and psychological definitions attributed, can be defined culturally. An eating disorder may assume different cultural meanings based on the sociocultural climate. From a disorder used to elevate religious status and to ensure a closeness to God, to one motivated by a thin ideal, the trajectory of eating disorders is convoluted and perplexing. I believe that it's important to gain a historical framework of eating disorders in order to better address their presence in society today. And clearly, we have made tremendous advances in the past 40 years, but that is mostly due to an increased prevalence of eating disorders in our society today. There was a demand for knowledge because of the sheer volume of those suffering and thus eating disorders have become something worth studying. The need for funding inquiry within the eating disorder world is ever present. As of today, eating disorders are the second deadliest psychiatric illness behind only the opioid epidemic. Also, as of today, eating disorders are the least funded psychiatric illness. I'm going to repeat that one more time because my voice kind of cut out. (laughs) As of today, eating disorders are the second deadliest psychiatric illness. Also, as of today, eating disorders are the least funded psychiatric illness. Then we jumped into episode five, which is particularly relevant for me because I am determined to be a culture changer with the discussion of eating disorders. And so in episode five, we talked about culture as an ideological factor in eating disorders. We learned that our culture is body obsessed and our feelings of worth are dictated by the bodies we inhabit. We are preoccupied with our physical appearance. Our thoughts surrounding our bodies become more and more the ruling factors of our lives. And regrettably, these thoughts are largely negative. We live surrounded and plagued by body dissatisfaction, which can impede upon self-esteem and confidence. Our culture is body-obsessed, and the body that we are obsessed with is a thin one. We also talked about eating disorder depiction on screen, in the media, as one of the primary sources of cultural comprehension in our society. An eating disorder depiction on screen is scarce and reductive at best. 
Despite eating disorders affecting millions of individuals nationwide and having the second highest mortality rates for psychiatric disorders in the United States, eating disorders' cultural portrayal employs harmful tropes and techniques, posing a risk for vulnerable audiences. The media largely struggles to present an accurate and genuine understanding of eating disorders. They drive an exclusionary, triggering, and misleading eating disorder narrative. For those who have suffered from eating disorders, it can be incredibly cathartic and empowering in an empowering experience to see on screen our own suffering and our triumph. Filmmakers and novelists, however, might be, must be aware not to glamorize eating disorders nor to minimize the suffering of survivors. Triggers have to be encountered for in full within the screenplay and portrayal of one struggling with an eating disorder. There is extreme danger in the singular frame of portrayal in eating disorders in addition to parlaying an untrue or manipulated understanding of eating disorders. They are illnesses of solitude, of paranoia, of longevity, they also affect a wide variety of people, including all races, genders, shapes, ages, religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, identities, and weights, and the screen must reflect this. Then we jumped into episode six, where we talked about eating disorders on college campuses. College campuses undoubtedly offer a whole host of newness, new classes, new peers, new city-state for some, new extracurriculars, new independence, new schedule, new food. The stress involved in the transition to college can exasperate, exasperate, I can't say that word, whatever, (laughs) already disordered eating in addition to prompt the development of an eating disorder. College students may be more susceptible to developing eating disorders because of their newfound self-reliance and independence in a seemingly unlimited world of food choice and freedom. This can be overwhelming for some, especially if they feel an intense pressure to fit into their new community and conform to conventional physical or body ideals. There's also a lot of harmful language employed within college campuses, including the fat-phobic freshman 15, the idea of pulling trig, fasting or purging rituals surrounding eating and drinking in college. And then during this episode, I also talked about my experience as a college student. I'm, although I'm only a sophomore in my fall semester, um, I have had quite the journey dealing with an eating disorder and trying to recover from one in college. And then during this episode, I also talked about the conception of the podcast, how in my moments of panic, in my moments of paranoia, in my moments of solitude, I turned to the voice memo app on my phone and I was able to voice my pain and voice my suffering and try to get through all that I was feeling. And the idea for the podcast was born in that moment. It was weirdly instinctual to voice my pain on a voice memo app. I felt just as worse as I had ever had during the worst of my eating disorder, but it was telling of how much I had grown because I was taking steps to confront the pain. I had to speak about what I was going through to myself and make it real. Similar to my journaling, it resulted in a recognition of my suffering. And I no longer would disassociate. Instead, I was allowing myself an outlet of voice. And although no one might ever hear the recording, I had it for myself. And that was enough. 
clearly that recording has transcended room 259 in Kavanaugh Hall <laughs> and the voice memo app on my phone as it exists now on Spotify, you know, all of these streaming podcast services. But kind of beautiful to think about that. Episode seven, we talked about eating disorders in quarantine, which has been a hugely, you know, poignant poignant issue, very relevant issue. And just as college campuses can lead to an eating disorder arising, resurfacing, or worsening, so can quarantine. Largely because of the isolation, the change of location, sedentary behavior, food insecurity, unpredictability, a tremendous amount of stress or unease or turbulence during this time. The media messaging surrounding weight gain during quarantine, which is largely fatphobic. We also talked about the different protective measures that may be necessary when going into quarantine and how structure with mealtimes, rest times, gentle movement with compassion may be helpful in recovery, to limit your media consumption, to engage in positive valued activities that enhance self-esteem and promote an upregulation of positive affect in non-weight or shape-related life domains, such as building a new skill or revisiting a forgotten one. How it's also important to be vigilant and to track your emotions and to track changes. In the long term, we do not know what effect a global pandemic will have on the millions of sufferers of eating disorders. In the short term, we know that individuals with eating disorders may be more vulnerable to facing adverse effects from COVID-19. And we also know that quarantine largely has been a breeding ground for eating disorder development and worsening. Unprecedented has become the word of the year. So we're all trying to figure out how to make this work. And I don't have all the answers No one has all the answers, but my experience during quarantine of self-forgiveness, of redefining myself, of engaging in restorative, pleasurable, positive behaviors and thoughts and activities has been very, very helpful. Episode eight kind of confronted, again, these, these ideas in episode six and seven of recovery and relapse. We talked about the different modes of recovery, including physical, behavioral, psychological, relational. We talked about how eating disorders can exist on a continuum and how this might manifest in relapse. And eating disorders existing on a continuum is something that I found incredibly helpful in my own research and in my own experience. We also talked about comorbidity during recovery, how that's dealt with. We talked about the different types of treatment as of today. And we also talked about one of my favorite topics, making peace with weight change. (laughs) Given someone whose weight has changed in many ways over the past six years. (laughs) And finally, we're at episode nine, where we talked about the evolutional theories of eating disorders. At first, we started discussing the ineffective treatment Compared to other psychiatric illnesses and diseases, eating disorders largely do not have effective treatment. And how we must understand the why of eating disorders to then implement the how to treat. 
We talked about different theories such as the intersexual competition hypothesis, reductive suppression hypothesis, adapted to flee famine hypothesis, thrifty genotype hypothesis, set point theory, and more novel approaches, which view eating disorders on a continuum. More novel approaches included binge eating as a protection against eating disorder and psychoneuroimmunological approach and neurology and how treatment can be informed by such theories. All these theories share a common element, response to a threat. And this is very telling of what eating disorders do because they serve a purpose. They can at times be coping mechanisms, identifying eating disorders as a response to a threat, and then identifying the threat that eating disorders are responding to is critical in recovery. Because once you identify the threat, you may be able to implement more adaptive behaviors to address such threat in place of your eating disorder. And these threats, when we talk about eating disorders, are largely not food-based. Sometimes they can be body image-based, but largely there are some underlying factors that need to be discovered and addressed. And during recovery, an important part that you have to realize is you no longer have to be threatened by such things. And this is an ongoing conversation as research develops and the theoretical framework surrounding eating disorders develops and becomes more extensive and conclusive. So more to come on that topic. <clears throat> so now we are here at the Q&A section of episode 10. And there's a couple different things I'm going to cover during this Q&A and know that this Q&A is coming from my own experience, dealing with an eating disorder, being surrounded by eating disorders. And it's not perfect knowledge, nor is it uh, clinically recommended. <laughs> but this is what I know. And I'm going to share you guys. I'm going to share with you guys what I do know. The first question we know what you are recovering from, but who and what are you recovering for? This is one of my favorite questions because it really directed my recovery experience. I'm recovering from an eating disorder. I'm recovering from body dysmorphia. And there's a couple different things I'm recovering f for. Number one, I'm recovering for my friends, especially those who have seen me at some really dark times and want me to be happy and want the best. I'm recovering for them because they mean the world to me and oftentimes it's, it's, um, it's easier to recover for someone from for someone else rather than yourself during an eating disorder because your eating disorder brain will try to convince you that you don't reserve you don't deserve recovery. I'm also recovering for my family and I'm doing this podcast for them too so that they can understand eating disorders in a greater and more profound light. <clears throat> 
considering a loved one has dealt with it. I'm also recovering, recovering to my career eventually. No longer do I want my every single day controlled by food and controlled by what I feel about my body. No longer do I want that to be a, a ruling factor in my life. I want to completely forget about food at, at one point <laughs> and not be scared by it anymore. I'm also recovering for my future self and my future kids. If I ever have a daughter one day, or a son, if I have her kids in one day, I never want them to have to deal with something like this. And I want to be a very positive example of how to talk about your body, how to engage in, in, in positive behaviors surrounding self-talk and self-concept and self-definition. And how to enjoy food and celebrate it. And then also how to eventually relinquish your control from food. I'm not quite there yet. But I want that for my life. This is something similar to the, what we talked about in episode 8, recovery and relapse. During recovery, you have to determine what life worth living looks like to you. And in large part, the life that I envision worth living for myself is what I'm recovering to. And it includes a complete relinquishment of control surrounding food, surrounding my body. It includes being a supportive, encouraging member in other people who are, who are struggling with an eating disorder and attempting to recover to be an example for them of what life can look like after an eating disorder because often it feels like there is no life beyond an eating disorder. And I want to be an example for what life can look like. So I think right now that's probably my biggest motivation. Another question that we got was, compare your mindset from the beginning of freshman year of college to now? This is a loaded question because so much has changed. <laughs> um, I think at the beginning of freshman year last, in, you know, starting college, I remember the summer going into my freshman year, I weighed myself every single day. And I was waiting to see the pounds drop. They seldom did. But I was so worried about how I would present myself in terms of, of my body image, in terms of my weight and stuff during college. And I wanted to reinvent myself a little bit. And I wanted to go in the thinnest I'd ever been which was not healthy, nor uh, 
it's just not okay. And I didn't recognize those things as eating disorder behaviors or my eating disorder brain before going into college. But at the beginning of freshman year, I was I was occupied with trying to lose weight. That's kind of been a characteristic of my life for many years, trying to lose weight. And right now, I'm not trying to lose weight. <laughs> In fact, I'm trying to gain, if anything, or maintain. Wherever my body feels comfortable, it's going to go. And there's always those thoughts that run in the back of my mind of, of losing weight, of becoming smaller. But it's becoming easier and easier to, count, to, to confront those and to counter them with more positive experiences and more positive thoughts. Another question we had, what positive aspects or traits have you discovered about yourself in the process of recovery? So, so many. Like I said, it has been incredibly vocational in terms of what I want to do with my life. It has completely changed the trajectory of my life, of where I see myself going, what I see myself doing. I want to, first and foremost, change public discourse surrounding eating disorders, lead a genuine, non-triggering, non-glamorizing account of eating disorders in our culture. Fight against diet culture. Fight against a thin ideal. Not only for myself, but for other people. Also, during recovery, I was able to define myself in a different way. No longer was it about a number. It was about quality of life not quantity of how much I measured. And one of the biggest things coming out of recovery and also coming out of this semester specifically is I've realized my own strength and that is quite an empowering thing. Because having to kind of figure out how to recover and, and how to advocate for yourself during really difficult times and also alone is very difficult and it's not something I would necessarily recommend but in hindsight I realize how strong I was in those moments and I'm very proud of myself and now I'm a huge advocate of protecting yourself in whatever measure you can and praising yourself and celebrating yourself Another question we had is, how does your environment influence the recovery process? So being at home versus college, um, they, they kind of take on different meanings. So being at home for me for a long time meant triggers and was very, very scary to go home. It doesn't mean that necessarily anymore because of quarantine and I was able to confront a lot of triggers and restructure what my home experience was like. Um, college, I think when I come back next semester, is going to be very scary because I know what happened in the beginning of this semester and I know what has happened in past semesters. 
So it's really scary, but it's important to be very intentional with how you protect yourself within these different environments. If you identify triggers, if you are aware of generally how you deal in these environments, then you can, prior to entering these environments and during as well, you can set up protective measures for yourself. I know when I was going home during spring break of this year, I set up protective measures such as eating, you know, three meals, three snacks a day. I did nothing else during that time. I sat at my kitchen table. I did not have my phone in front of me. I did not have anything in front of me. And I sat there and I ate food. And it's a wild experience to do nothing else besides eating, let me tell you. But it was incredibly restorative in my own process. And I did that every single day for like five months. And then also, too, I was able to construct really positive experience surrounding food, whether that was family time, whether that was mindfulness, whether that was, you know, cooking or looking at recipes and figuring out what to do to make them. Being experimental in food also is very, is very, it's a fun thing to do. Highly recommend that. I also set up protective measures in terms of the scale. Uh, that is still gone and will not reenter my life for a long time. Even when I go to the doctors, I ask politely, I do not want to know my weight. And you are completely entitled to ask that question and to receive that request. Going to college, I know for next semester, I'm not going to be alone. I'm going to figure out a way to not only have an outlet to get off campus if I need it, but to also be accountable and not be isolated in a single, especially during a pandemic. So these are just a few examples, and there are many, many more that I constructed before going home in the spring, during college this semester, and what I envision myself doing going home for the 10 weeks before we come back for a second semester. <clears throat> and I highly encourage anyone else to do these same things. Another question we had, what is the process like for someone who has an eating disorder and what is the realization like? It is kind of earth shattering, that realization. And I did not want to confront it for a long, 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 long time. But it was so rewarding once I eventually did. Not only was I rewarded by friends and, you know, people who had listened, students at my school, in sharing how courageous they thought I was, how brave they thought I was, offering their support. It's also incredibly liberating once you eventually free yourself from that obligation of silence that your eating disorder demands. And it doesn't matter whatever stage you're in within the eating disorder, whether you, whether you feel like you're developing, whether you feel like you're suffering, whether you feel like you're entering recovery, it does not matter what stage. It is incredibly liberating nonetheless to live outside of your mind a little bit and live outside of the eating disorder brain because 
your eating disorder brain will continue to ruminate, will continue to control, will continue to take hold of your life. But you need to let something else in. You need to let some, some, an external factor in to disrupt that eating disorder brain because it will rule your life otherwise. And then kind of an overarching question that I got a lot is, what do you do if someone you love is experiencing the symptoms? How do you help and support a loved one? How can you be aware of warning signs? How can you better help when there's a problem? Whether you're a parent, whether you're a friend, whether you're you know, an acquaintance, whether you're a kid, whether you're a cousin, whether like whatever it is. If you have a loved one that you feel is suffering from an eating disorder, what are the warning signs? How can you help? How do you address these problems? And just from my own experience, some things that I find really helpful. Number one are I statements. If you're going to confront anyone in your life, any loved one who you feel like has an eating disorder or is developing the symptoms or you feel like needs recovery, whatever it is, I statements are really important. It's not you did this, you do this, you this, this, this. No, no, no. It's not that. It's I am very concerned. I want to see the best for you. I want to see you happy. I, I, I. If you frame it that way, that's very helpful. Because eating disorder sufferers and survivors already deal with enough blame. They don't need any more from you. Also, I would say, be very cognizant of how you talk about yourself, how you discuss food, how you talk about your body in all of these situations. As much as talking and discussing these things is important, it's also important to be a good example as much as you possibly can. Surrounding food, surrounding how you talk about your body. Because we learn by watching in a lot of ways. And having a support system that's a good role model and a good example is very important for an eating disorder survivor, especially if they are trying to go through recovery. I would also say try to refrain from appearance comments as much as you can. And if you notice someone changing their weight, do not compliment it. Do not acknowledge it. I mean, you can acknowledge it, but don't, tr don't try to reinforce it because you may be complimenting an eating disorder, which is not okay. And that sets a neural pathway that is really difficult to restructure. One of the things that I always remember in my recovery is um, when I came home for Christmas break last year, almost a year ago, and everyone was telling me that I looked different. And I was bombarded with these messages, right? And then I asked, I'm hanging out with one of my friends one day. 
And I'm still trying to define myself because everyone's telling me I am different, right? I don't necessarily feel it, but everyone's telling me it, so it must be true, right? And I ask my friend and I say, hey, like, do you notice that I've lost weight? Do you notice that I'm different? Do you notice that I look different? And she looked me straight in the eye and she goes, Kira, you've always been the same beautiful human to me. Doesn't matter if you gain weight, if you lose weight, if you are steady weight for your entire life, it does not matter to me. You are my friend and that's all that matters. And that was one of the moments I will literally never forget because not only did it completely neglect any mention of weight, of body, of, you know, change, it affirmed to me that I was okay, <laughs> that I was not different, that there wasn't anything necessarily to be concerned about, and that it didn't, it didn't matter in the future whether I gained weight, whether I lost weight, whether I changed how I looked. It didn't matter to her. And knowing that, from one of my best friends was incredible. Overall, I would say, and we can talk about this more in the future, but overall, I would say, have compassion. Be a steady, consistent source of support because eating disorder, pa or eating disorder patients, eating disorder survivors deal with, you know, change all the time and disrupting and turbulent change. So being a consistent set of support is super helpful. Not, not commenting on their appearance, using I statements, affirming to them that no matter what they look like, they will always be your friend and you will always love them and that they are a gift. They are not a burden. They are a gift to you. Affirming these things can make all the difference. As you guys know, I like to do an art or insight share at the end of every episode. And today's insight share comes from Ashley Bennett, who is the body image therapist on Instagram. So at body image underscore therapist. And she had a post entitled, A Tip for Listening to Your Body. And this is something I try to engage with it as much as possible. She writes, our bodies speak through sensations and movements, not words. If you are listening for words, you are likely to listening, you are likely listening to thoughts you have about your body, which may be old, ingrained, critical thoughts from your mind. Instead, Curiously and non-judgmentally notice what's actually present for your body when you listen and suspend making meaning about what you hear, if just for a moment. Next week, HTIL will not broadcast. I will be preparing to finish this semester strong with my final exams and papers and projects. Prayers and hope directed my way is much appreciated. However, we do have some fun things in the works for ATI, HTIL. 
The next time you will hear from me is during an interview with Elise Retch, who is a nutrition therapist and co-author of Intuitive Eating and the Intuitive Eating Workbook. And this interview will be released on Sunday, November 22nd. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you missed the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites if you would like to listen to my story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia. You can listen on any of these platforms, episode two. And please consider sharing this podcast with family, friends, or those you feel could specifically benefit. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts at Heavier Than I Look on Instagram at HTIL Podcast on Twitter. If you're interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show or interacting with the podcast further, please do not hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. And finally, a thank you to all of you who have listened over the past two and a half months. There's so much more to come, and I can't wait for you guys to join me on this journey. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.